The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I am Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's discussion and topic, where three of us on this panel will discuss alternative options when your employee or you as the individual employee uh, has not been selected under the H-1B lottery system, which, by the way, this year has been majority of the people, I think close to um, less than 10% maybe were selected from the uh, petitions filed with the USCIS for fiscal year 2024, which starts scores on October 1st of 2023. But let me briefly introduce my esteemed panels today, uh, panelists for today's panel discussion. We have Chris Drynan, who has, I think we were just talking before when preparing for this panel, over 25 years of experience as an immigration lawyer and almost 15 years at the Murthy Law Firm. We have Lori Haas, who has over 20 years as an attorney, uh, fewer at do, uh, with the state government, actually, and now has joined uh, our firm to practice immigration and does complicated and complex areas in the special project department, including criminal immigration and issues that most immigration lawyers are nervous to touch uh, because of her prior background and experience in those areas. So for today's discussion, you know, most of you, I think, are familiar with the H-1B, of course. And besides the H-1, most employers who have foreign branches, subsidiary affiliates try to do the L-1. And then, of course, for students who still have the optional practical training, the F-1 OPT, those are the common types of work authorization that exist, but there are many, many other options that you may at least want to somewhat consider for yourself if you're the employee or for your employees if you're the employer, right? So the first one, of course, is the CAP-exempt employment. So the, one of the first options that we like to consider is the H-1B CAP-exempt employment which is where you are no longer or not subject to the H-1B lottery at all. And this is available if it is either a university, like an institution of higher education, like a university or a college. Second, it has to be a nonprofit entity, which is related to or affiliated with such institutions of higher education or it's a nonprofit research organization or a government research organization, right? Not just any nonprofit, but it's really a nonprofit research organization. Uh, it is not necessary to actually be required to work for that particular university. But for example, even if your employer is a consulting company, but you are working at the university or at a university hospital, uh, then you would be considered as CAP exempt. So in order for the institution to qualify, it must meet the following criteria. And according to Section 101A of the Higher Education Act, an institution of higher education 
must be either a public or a nonprofit institution, must provide admission to students who have earned a secondary education, be licensed by the proper institution to provide education beyond secondary school, and finally, offer educational programs which award bachelor's degree or at a minimum, a two-year associate's degree. So with that, I'm going to invite maybe Chris to jump in and talk a little bit about what is a related or affiliated nonprofit entity. Chris, take it away. Thank you, Sheila. Um, as you were saying, a, a nonprofit um, institution that's affiliated with a university can qualify as cap-exempt. And the term affiliation is defined pretty clearly in the, in the regulations, and this is something that's been a little controversial over the years. Um, but the basic gist of this is um, you can qualify in any one of the following ways. Uh, the nonprofit organization has to be connected with the university through shared ownership or controlled by the same board. Um, two, it, can be op it has to be operated directly by the institution of higher education. Uh, three, it can be attached to the institution as a member or a branch or a subsidiary. Or fourth, um, there can be a formal affiliation agreement um, with the university uh, that creates an active working relationship between the two, the two entities, between the university and between the nonprofit. Um, you can meet any one of those criteria to be considered affiliated for purposes of CAP exemption. Um, and as Sheila also noted, you don't have to be directly employed by the nonprofit, by, by the university or by the nonprofit. Um, you could have a scenario where you're employed by a for-profit employer, but the majority of your duties are at a nonprofit institution. And the work you're doing there has to directly enhance it or enhance the the main goal of that nonprofit institution. Um, an example of this might be a doctor who's working for a for-profit um, physician collaborative who's placed at a teaching hospital. Uh, in that situation, the doctor would be able to take the benefit of that teaching hospital's cap exemption, even though his or her employer it would not be directly cap exempt. Okay, there has the, the term that's used in the in the the USCS memoranda, uh, the work they're doing has to have a nexus between the main goal of the organization. So, for example, you could not be a janitor or someone working in the cafeteria. Uh, that wouldn't work because you're not enhancing the main goal of the institution. Great. Thank you so much, Chris. So next we're going to talk a little bit more about categories that are reserved for nationals of certain countries. Of course, our immediate neighbor is Canada, so we'll start with the TN. But before I have Laurie jump in, we just want to, as I said, the other countries which are, have certain specific kind of benefits or immigration categories. Besides Canada, of course, is Mexico, because Canada and Mexico both are part of the trade NAFTA, or the, which used to be called North American Free Trade Agreement, now called the U.S.-Canada-Mexico, USMCA Mexico-Canada Agreement. And then you have Australia and several others. So again, keep in mind, unlike the priority dates, it is not connected or related to the person, the applicant's country of birth. So for example, a person who was born in India later obtains the citizenship, let's say, of Canada or of Australia. The person would then be eligible for the TN as a Canadian or the E3 as an Australian. So let's jump into it. So. Laurie, I'm going to invite you to jump into the TN for Canadian citizens. Sure. Thanks, Sheila. 
so the TNV category is available to our neighbors to the north and to the south, certainly Canada and Mexico. So, and that's pursuant to an agreement that we have with, that U.S. has with Mexico and Canada. Um, it's an agreement uh, between the United States, Canada, and Mexico, formerly known as NAFTA. So one of the fundamental requirements to qualify for the TN visa is that the person must be a citizen of Canada or Mexico. The visa is available to those who will be working in the United States in any one of the professional uh, positions specified in the regulations. So there's a, a, a long list of professions that um, would you know, qualify. Some of the more notable ones might be accountants, doctors, registered nurses, pharmacists, um, university professors, hotel managers, computer system analysis, lawyers, engineers, uh, to name just a few. And for uh, the vast majority of these professions, the applicant must have obtained a college degree in a related field to qualify. So we know that experience alone, uh, or even a combination of education experience will not suffice. Um, there are other you know, uh, things that we want to note, and we're gonna ask Chris to expound on those. Yeah, and there's one exception to the requirement of a degree, and that's for the, the NAFTA position of management consultant. Um, you can qualify as a management consultant either with a degree or five years of relevant experience. That said, management consultant is a job position that gets lots of scrutiny at the border uh, or if you're applying for, for a visa in Mexico um, because sometimes people used to try to fit into a, to a position that wouldn't otherwise qualify for a T and visa. Um, so you have to show, if you're trying to come as a management consultant, you have to show that this is essentially a temporary position. Uh, it cannot be, or it's not intended to be something that you use to fill a permanent position at a company. Uh, you're supposed to be a consultant. You're supposed to provide advice. You're not supposed to be part of the, uh, part of the company, company's hierarchy. Um, the term they use in the memorandum is supernumerary. Um, you're supposed to be an add-on to the company, not part of the company. Um, now, as far as the logistics go here, um, you can file a petition for TN status with USCIS just like you would for an H-1B or an L-1, but you don't have to. Um, Canadians typically apply directly at the port of entry since Canadians don't generally require a visa for anything. Um, Mexicans, uh, people who are of Mexican citizen, citizenship have to apply for a visa at the U.S. Embassy. Um, there is no requirement uh, that a petition be approved be ahead of time to do that. That's a, that's a difference from something like an H-1B or an L-1. Um, Self-employment is not permitted for a TN. However, you can be sponsored by a, form, by a foreign company to perform work for a U.S. company. Um, and you could, in that scenario, be the owner of the foreign company. So there is a bit, self-employment, strictly speaking, is not permitted, but there is a bit of a workaround there in some circumstances. Now, normally you'd get TN status in three-year increments, and you can extend it forever as long as you're continuing to work in the same position. Um, dependents of TN people get admitted in TD status, which would allow them to stay here in the United States as long as the TN is here, but doesn't give them any work authorization. Thank you, Chris. So now let's jump to the E1, E2 treaty trader, treaty investor. For those who may not be very familiar, these are available to citizens of countries that have a bilateral treaty of trade, friendship, and commerce with the United States. 
so they can enter the U.S. either to carry on the substantial international trade that is mainly between the U.S. and that treaty country or to develop and to direct the operations of a U.S. company. Uh, so the E2 treaty investor category requires the individual or the company to make a substantial investment in the United States enterprise. Both of these, the E1, E2 categories can also be used for those who are coming to work in a supervisory, an executive, or an essential skills position for a qualifying employer. Again, it has to be the, it is either shareholders of that country, so it has to be between that country and the United States, so the ownership has to be uh, showing the, 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 you know, relationship between the two countries. So this classification generally works well for large, well-established companies, but it can also be used by entrepreneurs, much smaller companies who are looking to build their own startups in the U.S. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, the EVA NITU is not available for nationals of all countries because the law requires that they be the specific trade treaty between the U.S. and that country. So, uh, you know, for example, we have several countries, as I say, who are very long list from Japan to Australia, most of the European Union to some less obvious nation, even nations like Iran, Pakistan, and even Taiwan. Uh, but India does not have such a treaty, right? So people who are Indian don't have this option, but most other, many other countries do. Um, so they cover both. Most, many of them have only one or E2, but most of them cover both. But some, as I, we said, cover one or the other. Um, so both India and China, as we said earlier, don't have it. So I'm going to have uh, Chris then jump in and talk about a little bit more about the E1. Thank you, Sheila. Um, the, the, as, as Sheila was mentioning, there are basically two flavors of this type of visa. There's the E1 and the E2. Um, the E1 is reserved as the treat, is, is called the treaty trader visa. Um, to qualify for this, you have to engage in substantial trades, be, substantial trade between the treaty country and the United States. Now, there's no definition of what substantial trade is, um, but there are some guidelines provided in the regulations. Um, it has to be enough, enough trade between uh, enough trade sufficient to ensure a continuous flow of international trade between the U.S. and the treaty country. Uh, it can't be based on a single transaction. There has to be a continuous flow of multiple transactions. Um, and volume of exchange is the primary focus, but monetary value is also a factor. And technically, greater weight should be accorded, as as the guidance says, you should accord greater weight. Um, to transact to situations where there are more numerous transactions of larger value. Um, also, more than half of the total amount of the international trade conducted by the business must be between the U.S. and the treaty country. Now, the person applying for the E1 uh, can either be coming to carry on substantial trade between the U.S. and the treaty country, or the person can be coming as a key employee of the company, such as the executive or supervisor or an employee with essential skills to the company. Um, now, as Lori is going to talk about in a minute, I think the E2 category is referred to as a treaty investor visa. And to qualify, you have to make a substantial investment in the United States. Perfect, Lori. That's, uh, yeah, that's correct, uh, Chris, and thanks. So, yeah, the E2 um, is referred to as the treaty investor. 
And uh, again, uh, we know that substantial is not defined. And the immigration officer evaluating um, whether or not to issue the visa will look at some, uh, I guess, factors. Uh, the investment must be a substantial in proportional sense uh, to the, you know, investment um, the relationship to the cost of purchasing um, an established enterprise or creating the type of enterprise under consideration. We'll also look to see whether there is the investment is sufficient to ensure the treaty investor's financial commitment to the successful operation of the enterprise. And they'll also consider whether the investment is of a magnitude to support the likelihood that the treaty investor will successfully develop and direct the enterprise. The person applying for the E-2 uh, visa can either be the actual investor coming to develop and direct operations, or like the E-1, it can be an executive, supervisor, or essential skills employee of the company that is invested in the U.S. business. For both the E-1 and E-2, the company sponsoring the E-1 or E-2 worker must be at least 50% of, uh, owned by nationals of the treaty country. And the foreign national applicant must be a citizen of the same treaty country. We know that uh, E-1 and E-2 visas are typically issued for up to five years, and the foreign national will generally be admitted for two years at a time. And there's no maximum uh, number of times the E-1 and E-2 visa or status may be extended. And unlike, or, but unlike the H-1B and L-1, it is strictly a non-immigrant a visa, meaning that a visa may not be issued if the individual has, an immig has immigrant intent. Uh, the spouse and or children of the principal E1 or E2 uh, may be admitted as dependents, and dependents do not have to be citizens of the treaty country, and dependent spouses are eligible to apply for EADs. Wonderful. Yeah, this is a big plus point compared to H1B holders who obviously could not uh, until the principal gets the I-140 petition approval, and then you wait and apply, whereas this is so much easier because the E and the L spouses get it incidental, incident to their status, and so don't even really need the EAD, but they can apply for it, and it's just helpful to have that. And there's a lot of changes been going on about EAD for spouses uh, and with USCIS changing. So let's briefly touch upon the last, e, uh, so we talked about E1, E2, and now we're talking about the E3, which is available for citizens of Australia who are entering the U.S. to perform services in a specialty occupation. And if that sounds like an H1B, guess what? It is exactly the same definition because it requires the theoretical and practical application of specialized knowledge, um, et cetera. Sometimes when we're talking to people, we start talking to them and we forget like, oh, you're an Australian. That's right. You can get an E3. No worries if you were born in India or China or whatever. We can absolutely do this for you, right? The E3 is identical, as I said, very, very similar to the process for H-1B petitions, including the requirement to complete the labor condition application or LCA with the Department of Labor to get the prevailing wage. However, if the person is outside the U.S., the person is not required to file an I-129 with the USCIS. Uh, only the person needs the LCA certified by the Department of Labor. The beneficiary, the employee, is then able to apply directly at a U.S. consulate and enter on the E-3 visa. So if the applicant does not have the equivalent of a bachelor's degree, one could actually request 
the USCIS to combine education and experience. And while that's allowed even for H's, we've seen a little bit of pushback from the USCIS in general to any kind of combination there with H's, but it seems like they're a little bit more flexible with E3 because you have this treaty existing between Australia and the US. But there are only 10,500 E3 visas that are set aside each fiscal year, but this number has never been used. Uh, I guess Australians are not lining up the way citizens from other countries are. Dependent spouses are granted the E3S, uh, while the dependent children are granted the E3D, so the dependent versus the E3S, which is the spouse, because dependent spouses, only if you have an S, you are authorized to work incident to your status. Uh, the E3 is approved for two years at a time, and it, again, similar to the E1-E2s, can be renewed indefinitely. So next we want to touch upon the P classification for artists, athletes, and entertainers. So I'm going to invite Chris to talk a little bit about the P1 and the P2 and touch upon the P3 classification. Thank you, Sheila. Uh, the P classifications are kind of a grab bag of a bunch of different things. Um, P1 can be for internationally recognized athletes. Um, these are athletes who have achieved a certain level of fame, either individually or as a member of a group of team. Um, to, to come to the U.S. to perform in a specific athletic performance. Um, this, all, this P1 is also for entertainers who are coming to the U.S. Uh, to provide an essential part of a performance um, as part of an entertainment group. Uh, now, they have to have been affiliated with that group for at least one year, and that group has to be internationally recognized as outstanding. The individual person who's applying for the P1 does not in and of themselves have to be recognized as outstanding, but the group as a whole does. Um, there's also the P2 uh, for artists or entertainers and for their support personnel um, who are coming either individually or as a group if, as part of a reciprocal exchange program. You actually don't see this classification used very often because it's actually very difficult to qualify for. Um, P3 uh, is a petition for culturally unique performances. Uh, this is for individuals or groups, and they are coming to U.S. to pre present a culturally unique performance. Um, and that's defined generally um, as, a, as a style of artistic expression um, methodology or medium that's unique to a particular country or society or ethnicity. Um, for, so this could be dancing or singing or basically any sort of artistic performance that's unique to a, to a culture or to a country. Um, and a P3 can be coming here for either commercial or non-commercial purposes. It could be a benefit performance or they could actually be coming here to sell tickets. Either one is perfectly acceptable for P3. Thank you, Chris. Um, so for those who might be curious, you know, we've done at the Multi Law Firm several cases for Bharatnatyam dancers, Kuchipudi dancers, reggae musicians, different kinds of group, pop groups and bands uh, to come in on this beautiful, incredible P3 culturally unique performance. And it's really to continue to educate and empower and enlighten and really exchange ideas so that Americans can benefit uh, from learning about other countries and their art forms. Uh, with that, I'm going to invite uh, Lori to talk a little bit more about like the petitioner and the beneficiary and how it works. Sure. Thanks, Sheila. So 
Yeah, so we've, like Sheila said, we've worked with, um, you know, individuals who have, who have taken advantage of the P3 visa, and we know that the petitioner is often the employer, but it can also be a sponsoring organization. Um, and the beneficiary is the employee or the entertainer. Uh, and even if it is a performance group, all entertainers within the group must be listed as individual beneficiaries using the I-129 attachment so that they're covered by the um, the visa. Beneficiaries don't have to be performers. They can also be teachers or coaches who are coming into the U.S. to impart knowledge on a culture unique form of artistic expression. And the companion classification P3S is for essential uh, support personnel of these um, entertainers. The employer, uh, well, the purpose of the admission, as we have noted, is limited to a specific competition, event, or performance. And an event can include an entire season of performances. A group-related activities can also be considered an event. Great. Thank you. Uh, so in terms of the period of admission, so for the athletes, individual athletes in a P1 status, you can get up to five years. These for groups, P1 for teams or groups, and P2 or P3 for artists or entertainers. The time frame is generally determined by the USCIS in order to complete the, the particular competition or event, not to exceed one year. An extension for P1 athletes in five-year increments up to a 10-year maximum stays permitted. Extensions for all others to complete the same event is only in one-year increments. So clearly, like our athletes and sports personalities, the grace period uh, uh, is up to 10 days before and 10 days after the start date. So jumping in for Chris, I guess, to talk a little bit about the petition process, the consultations. Yes, as part of the uh, petition process for a, a for the P classification, uh, you you have to obtain a labor consultation, which is basically a statement from the appropriate labor organization or a labor union um, having expertise in the field of in, in the person's field, the, per, the field of the person you're you're applying for. Um, basically, saying they have no objection to approving the P visa petition. Um, they also have to address, for example, for a P three. Um, whether the, the applicant skills are culturally unique and whether the events that they're going to be performing in are cultural in nature and whether they're appropriate for the P3 classification. Um, for a P1 applicant, uh, the labor consultation has to address um, the achievements of the person in the field of endeavor and whether the applicant or the group, and if we're talking about a group, is truly internationally recognized and whether the services that are about to be performed in the U.S. are appropriate for the P1 classification. All of this has to be addressed in the labor consultation. Great. Thank you, Chris. And we can now jump to the O1 classification. Remember, O, like outstanding, but it's generally considered as extraordinary ability or achievement. And Lori is going to touch upon the O1A. Thanks, Sheila. So, yeah, as Sheila mentioned, the O1A non-immigrant category is reserved for individuals with extraordinary ability. So we're talking about extraordinary ability in uh, the areas of science, education, business, or athletics. We're not talking about the areas of the arts, motion pictures, or television industry. So when we talk about extraordinary uh, ability in the field of science, education, business, or athletics, we mean a level of expertise indicating that the person is one of the small percentage 
um, of individuals who has risen to the very top of their field of endeavor. And there are two uh, evidentiary bases to show extraordinary ability. The first being the receipt of a major internationally recognized award. That might be something we um, are familiar with, such as the Nobel Prize. And an alternative way to uh, establish uh, extraordinary ability uh, would be to show convincing documentation in at least three of the following uh, categories. Membership in associations which require outstanding achievements for their members, published material in professional or trade publications about the individual, the individual has commanded or will command a high salary, or authorship of scholarly articles in the field. So showing one of the, showing three of these, I should say, would um, establish or could establish extraordinary ability. Thank you, Laurie. And this, this sounds very much like the extraordinary ability some of you may have researched on to get the green card under the EB1A category. Guess what? It really is very, very similar, the criteria, the standards for the O1A. Uh, but now we have a slightly different, uh, the O1B, which is meant for individuals with an extraordinary ability in the arts or extraordinary achievement in motion picture or the television industry. And what does this mean? It means distinction. Distinction, what does distinction mean? Distinction means a high level of achievement in the field of the arts evidenced by a degree of skill and recognition substantially about that ordinarily encountered to the extent that the person is described as prominent, renowned, leading, or well-known in the field of arts. And to qualify for the same thing, the O1B in motion picture or TV, again, you have to demonstrate extraordinary achievement. Again, it, you have to be outstanding, notable, or leading, and can't just be like most other people. So besides the O1A and B, you have the O2 for those who will accompany the O1 in providing assistance that is considered as an integral part of the O1's specific event or performance or essential to the O1B's production. Uh, it should be noted that the O2 classification is limited to foreign nationals who will accompany O1 principles in the field of arts and athletics. It is not available to individuals who are accompanying O1 individuals in the field of science, business, or education, because presumably you're not requiring a whole slew of coaches or artists or people setting up your stage for your art performance. So it sort of makes sense. So the, it's the O2, which is first people integral part of your achievement or performance. So Chris, again, we come up with an advisory opinion. What does that mean and what's required? Much like I, as when I talked about the P classification um, requiring a, a labor consultation, an O-1 petition has to include a written advisory opinion um, from a peer group or from a labor organization, unless you can prove that there is no such organization in the field of endeavor. Um, now, in the case of an extension of an O-1 petition, if you provided a written opinion within the prior two years, an extension petition can request a waiver of that requirement, Just but you just need to provide a copy of the letter you previously provided. Now, O-1 classification can be based on a single or multiple offers of employment, and the petitioner can be an actual employer or can be an agent. 
Um, the approval of the initial petition can be valid up to three years, and you can get extensions in one-year increments for an unlimited duration. There is no ultimate global time limit on these. And that is one thing to remember. Um, I do get a lot of calls from people who want to file for an O-1, and there's an impression that like the EB-1A classification, this is self-sponsored. Not the case on O-1. O-1 does require an agent or an employer. You cannot self-sponsor yourself for an O-1. Good point, uh, Chris. Excellent point. I think it is easy because sometimes the categories sound almost similar, but then there are these exceptions, carve-outs that exist. Uh, Okay, so Laurie, we're going to have you jump on and discuss the J-1 exchange visitor category because a lot of people love it. They think it's very simple and straightforward, and to some extent it is. I also want to be somewhat mindful. We're a little past 30 minutes, almost 35 minutes, and I know we try to do these within 30 to 45 minutes because people are busy, but they still want to get education and empowerment from the fantastic legal team at the Multi Law Firm. So let's try to, I guess, mosey along with talking about the J's, and then we'll hopefully wrap up with the religious workers, and we should be done hopefully within the next 10 minutes or so. So take it away, Lori. Sure. Thanks, Sheila. So yeah, so... The J exchange visitor category is uh, for individuals approved to participate in work and study-based exchange visitor programs. So yeah, it is, it is popular. And the purpose of the program is to provide our nationals with opportunities to participate in educational and cultural programs in the United States, and then return home to share their experiences and to encourage Americans to participate in you know, similar uh, educational and cultural programs in other countries. So there are a number of different parties to the process uh, for a J-1 um, visa, and I'll just touch on those. So we have the Department of State, which issues uh, the J visas to exchange visitors and their dependents, uh, designates exchange visitor program sponsors, and creates and administers federal regulations and policies governing the uh, J visa program. So after that, we uh, think about the exchange visitor program sponsors. So these are the legal entities that have applied for and received designation from the Department of State to conduct an exchange visitor program and have been enrolled in CBIS. The exchange visitor program sponsor either directly offers the program in which the exchange visitor will participate or places the exchange visitor in an appropriate program. We then uh, talk about the responsible officers or referred to as the ROs or the, or ANDA, I should say, the um, alternate responsible responsible officers who are referred to as the AROs. So these are individuals who have been appointed by an exchange visitor program sponsor, and they perform duties set forth in the regulations and represent the exchange visitor sponsor program. Uh, The exchange visitors, these are the individuals who are applying for the visa, they have been selected by an exchange visitor program sponsor to participate in a particular exchange visitor program. Finally, we have the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which manages, and within that, ICE and CBP, which manages CBIS. They admit the uh, visitor to the United States in exchange visitor status and adjudicate certain immigration benefits for the visitors and their dependents. Great. Thank you, Laurie. And, you know, it's, if you, the word CBIS reminds you of F1, it's because a lot of the J1s also tend to be sort of quasi-students because they're exchange visitors. They could be at universities, but there are many, many categories of J as we'll touch upon very, very briefly. 
uh, mindful of the time. You have the professor and researcher, scholars. You have the professor researchers, which is, again, through the university. But you have short-term scholars. You have students. You have trainees. A lot of, like, the major hotels, the Marriott's and the Hilton's and the Hyatt's, they all have trainees coming from different parts of the world uh, uh, on the J-1 trainee program for 18 months. You have interns. You have J-1 teachers, like a lot of the camp counselors. You have the au pairs. You have government visitors on J-1. You have summer work travel programs. You have the international visitors on J-1. And you have the physicians who are generally subject to the two-year home residency requirement if you come in on the J visa on like the H status. And you have certain specialists. So it's a very, very large category. There is a lot of information about J-1 and the program sponsor and how do you do it. In fact, the American Immigration Council, uh, um, you know, it's, if you go to AmericanImmigrationCouncil.org, which is affiliated with the American Immigration Lawyers Association, they do a lot of the sponsors. They act as agents. They will bring people. They will do a lot of things to help um, people come into the U.S., right? And then you have, besides that, I'm going to jump in. I think we're, because of time, I'm going to jump and say, let's move to uh, Chris talking a little bit about the our workers, the religious workers. Thank you, Sheila. Um, as Sheila just mentioned, the R1 visa is for religious workers in the United States. Um, that is for someone who is coming to the U.S. temporarily uh, to work in a religious vocation. Um, there are a couple of different categories here. One is sort of the, the classic one you probably see the most, that's a minister. Um, this is someone who's authorized and trained to conduct uh, religious worship and perform other duties that are usually performed by clergy. So this is normally going to be someone who's ordained in the church, who's actually formally authorized to conduct religious services. Um, it can also qualify if you're coming for a religious vocation. Um, that's defined as a lifetime commitment uh, through vows or ceremonies to a religious way of life. Think of a monk or a nun or something similar. Um, there are also uh, the category of what are called religious occupations. Um, these are, this is sort of a broader category for different, different job classifications that are still related to religion. Um, so it has to be related to a traditional religious function, um, has to be primarily involved uh, teaching, uh, carrying out the religious creeds or beliefs of the denomination. Um, this cannot include jobs that are primarily administrative or clerical, although you can can include limited administrative duties and still qualify for this. Um, this cannot be for religious, religious, religious study does not classify as religious work to qualify for the R1, although you can study while you're here on an R1. Um, now, to qualify for this, there, there are actually a bunch of different, different things you have, requirements you have to meet. Um, the main one that we look for is you have to be a member of the religion for at least two years before you file this petition, and you have to be coming to perform a job in either a professional or a non-professional capacity. Yeah, I was going to jump in. Thanks. Uh, so in addition, you need to be coming to the United States to work at least part-time, and that would be considered at least 20 hours per week. Uh, additionally, the work must primarily be related to traditional religious functions. So we know that the R1 cannot be used uh, for the person to perform administrative or support functions, such as clerical employees or fundraisers. And so we think about, we, we, we know that performing work in support of the religious organization is not the same thing as being a religious worker. 
uh, a person providing tech support for a church's online presence generally would not be considered a religious worker, for example. And we also know that uh, the religious worker must be sponsored by a nonprofit religious organization in the United States. Thank you, Lori. And just to wrap up, you know, the, our category, uh, the first time that the religious organization files the R1 for the religious worker, the USCIS will not generally approve the case until the fraud detection and national security, the FDNS, performs a site visit. So if the employer, the religious organization, the petitioner is filing the R1 for the first time, it tends to greatly increase processing times. For the premium processing for R1s is only available if a site visit has already occurred because scheduling those can take months. Uh, the good news is that the R1 status is available for up to five years. The individual, the, the uh, beneficiary is eligible for another five-year extension after residing abroad and being physically present outside the U.S. for at least one year. A lot of religious, including Hindu temples and other temples, churches, mosques, but because there's such a shortage of people who are willing to devote their life to God, that they are loving this sort of, sometimes it can become a revolving door with go and they come back because there's just such a shortage and a demand for it and less people and far more demand for having religious workers. The R2 status is available for the dependent spouses and children, but they don't enjoy employment authorization. Uh, so as you can see from the discussion that the three of us just had with um, Chris Drynan, Laurie House, and myself, you know, the whole idea is to provide options, alternatives. It was not intentional that we would end with R1 religious workers in the name of the board, but it just happened that that was the order in which we were going. But the bottom line for you, whether you're the individual going through it or the employer, remember that it's not the end of the world if you don't get selected in the H1 lottery. Look at it, see if you're a particular candidate could at least be eligible for any of these other options um, because the last thing you want to do is forget about these options and then regret that, the, that you ended up not being able to use the services of the employee for the benefit and the growth of your organization. So with that, again, being very mindful of our time, uh, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, on behalf of Chris Drynan, our senior attorney, Laurie Haas, our experienced super-duper legal team, and everyone at the Murthy Law Firm, we want to thank you for joining us this afternoon to understand the options available uh, besides when the H1 lottery or the cap has been reached or the people are not selected for the lottery. So any legal questions, any issues, any strategy, any consultations, if you need filings, any of these cases, or for any other matter, please don't hesitate to contact us at the Murthy Law Firm. We would be delighted and honored to help you with our fantastic legal team. Wishing you a happy spring and have a great day. Thank you. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.